Welcome to The Vagicians. And we're here for you, the typical female, answering your not-so-typical questions women have about their health and well-being. Our panel of in-the-trench OBGYN experts includes Dr. Roslyn Mallory, Dr. Jacob Martin, and Dr. Sam Wolfe, who don't shy away from the challenges of female health today. We'll discuss everything from babies to menopause, periods and breasts, and everything in between. The Vagicians podcast is brought to you by Wolf Variety Entertainment and made possible by All About Women OBGYN, the Healthy Start Program, Emerald Coast Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the Panama City Surgery Center. Let's jump right in and jam with our team of Vagicians, Dr. Mallory, Dr. Martin, and Dr. Wolf. Here's our host, Rayanne Kruger. Welcome back. This is Rayanne Kruger, and this is The Vagicians. I want to say hello to our amazing panel of OBGYN experts. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. All right. We've got Dr. Sam Wolf. Right here. <laughs> Dr. Jacob Martin. Right here. And of course, the incomparable Dr. Rosalind Mallory. Hey. Hey, Dr. Mallory. Great to have you here. This is going to be an interesting episode. I have received a few questions. And if we have ample time, we may flow over um, the top. Uh, <laughs> you guys aren't following along with me here. You're supposed to be laughing at this. We're going to talk about breasts today. And let's jump right in to this. First of all, why are some small? Why are some large? Why are they all different sizes? That's just the way to get lower major. Well, that's one way. <laughs> okay. Well, I think you first have to just define what a breast is from a scientific standpoint and from an embryologic standpoint. <laughs> hey, here, here's the deal. What is a breast? It is, it is a modified sweat gland. Okay. It is a modified sweat gland to allow for a mother to be able to provide uh, milk for a developing baby. That's what a mammals do. That's where the word mammal comes from. It comes from mammary. And there's only a few mammals that don't do that. What is it? The the echidna, the platypus, and the... I like how you looked are, at me and you said, come on, you, you know the you couple animals. With, <laughs> I, I, think it's the, I have no help with the mammals. The, 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 the echidna, the duckbill platypus, and I think there's one more that, that are actually uh, egg-laying mammals. They're not placental mammals. But do they have nipples? That's a great question, and I'm going to look that up. Okay. Okay. Why do men have nipples? I love that question. Okay. And that the reason is, is because believe it or not, men are really just women that got a very large dose of testosterone during embryologic development. So that men actually have the ability to become a woman at that particular age at embryologic development, which I think is eight or nine weeks when it happens very, very early. But here's the deal. So unless you get that testosterone dose to make your gonads drop down and become testicles, you will, by default will be a woman. In fact, there's a condition called testicular feminization. And that's where there's a defect in the testosterone receptor. Androgen insensitivity yeah. syndrome. And yeah. don't say the famous person that has it because it's, it's being named after her. And I think that's wrong. It's like a HIPAA thing. She was very upset about that. There's a particular famous person that, that had this where that disease, is, or essentially that syndrome is where you are genetically male. You have an X and a Y chromosome, which makes you genetically male. But because there's a d defect in the testosterone receptor, receptor mm -hmm. that by default, you become a woman. And in fact, a very good looking woman with a, that looks very womanly. You know, when you have the situation, they are genetically male, but look exactly like a woman. Now, they do not have a uterus. 
but they do still have ovaries. The ovaries, the, go, the gonads by default will become ovaries rather than testicles. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's by default. They still have testicles. No, but they're not testicles because they haven't dropped down. Unless they drop down into the scrotum and become testicles, they're not producing. Nope. They go into but, the labia because they end up having. No, not with TFEM. With testicular okay. feminization, they, they don't drop down. They have female genitalia. Oh. The vaginal and external genitalia will be that of a woman, except that, that when you look in the vagina, if you were to look in there, there won't be a cervix. It'll just be a blind pouch. Mm-hmm. You still have to have them removed, though, because they have an increased chance of cancer. Right. Yes. Okay. So they still get some little testes. They're just not. <laughs> that's, just, that's if they're non-descended. That's actually, I do. I yeah, undescended. Mean, if they're mm-hmm. non-descended. I'm not talking about that. So a, a patient that's got testicular feminization, this is a patient where their ovaries, or their gonads are going to by default become ovaries, and they're going to produce just like ovaries. Am I wrong on that? Yes. I might be wrong. We're talking about androgen it's sensitivity syndrome. Right. Right. Because what that they is, they're testicles. still, yeah, because they're still producing testosterone. It's right. you don't have the receptor. Right. So that's. That's the problem. Yeah, that's yeah. the problem. I they, think, but they, I think once they become mm-hmm. the, the female phenotype, I think that that's not no, the case, isn't it? They still have them. Because oh. trust me, we had a student who had it and we got a full lecture. Yeah. Oh, boy. Wow. And you have to remember, or yes. else you have an increased risk but, of. Testicular, testicular cancer. cancer because it's a higher temperature right. inside the body but versus being tested. she was upset because she did body. not get the option of right. keeping it. Well, yeah. back to the original thing. <laughs> yeah, we're, hey, we're digressing. But we're not, <laughs> we're not arguing that they have nipples. They all yes. have nipples. Right, 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 right. That was the original question. So it's so interesting to me that everybody, except for maybe women who have very large breasts, everybody loves boobs. I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny that. It's also interesting how I feel like in, at least in a pop culture, like, it's been big boobs, then it's been little right, boobs. Right, little like, boobs, right. You know, it definitely it changes depending on the, yeah. the decade, what's popular. One thing that's interesting is that humans are one of the few mammals out there that have, the, where the female has large breasts even when not lactating. Right. And so there's not a lot of other mammals that have that situation. And there's some theories as to why that's the case. But uh, anyway, I'll leave that oh, up. It's attraction. I, I don't, who knows? We don't know. I mean, if we're confused right now and we have all this science, of course, we're <laughs> people are confused, right? It's no wonder we're all confused. I want to talk about something that, and I'm going to tell a deep, dark secret right now, but I remember being 14 breasts, you know, 12 to 14 breast developing and having hair on my chest around my nipples and being very concerned about this. Why does that happen? Oh, well, you know, remember, remember during puberty that your androgen levels are going through the roof. They're they're up and down. And remember that hair is particularly when you're talking axillary hair, you know, in your armpits and, and then around the nipples and things like that is going to be androgen driven uh, hair follicles. So OK, they, that's one of the reasons that you're going to see this, but particularly in puberty. But the biggest thing here, this is going to be more of a a genetic predisposition. So this is one of these things you kind of inherit. If you have a, okay. a mom that had hairy nipples, you know what? You're probably going to have hairy nipples. Uh, we see it more in Mediterranean uh, ancestry. Mm-hmm. And so that you know, when you look at that, so, but it's not necessarily something bad. It's, it's, we see this in patients, just like you see there's hairy men and not so hairy men. There's hairy women and not so hairy women. Well, thank goodness for Seventeen Magazine because they told me it was okay just to remove it. It's okay just to re- yeah. remove this. Get the good word out there. Get on Seventeen Magazine. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. We're going to talk about this in our next episode, our next sex episode. But I want to talk about nipple pleasure. So the nipples being an erogenous zone, and then also piercing and how that impacts that. How 
often are you seeing nipple piercing? Is it still a big thing? Does it, I, we talked about genitalia piercing. Um, it fluctuates. It'll be like months. I don't see any. And then all of a sudden everybody's coming in for an annual or new OB okay. has them. So it just kind of fluctuates. I've had patients say they got them for, they didn't have as much sensation, whether it was from breastfeeding or they normally just didn't have it. And they thought that getting nipple piercings would help that. And does it? I think it's, yeah, yeah, to an extent they did. All right. Well, any other? Well, I think from my standpoint, I think it's ornamental for the most part. From patients I have that I ask about it, I don't really ask about it. If they have a nipple piercing, I mean, it's kind of awkward when your gynecologist goes, hey, nice (laughs) nipple ring. (laughs) You know, know, I'm not going to really mention it. (laughs) I will say this, though, because I have had patients ask, hey, is this going to affect breastfeeding? And if you talk to some of the lactation consultants, uh, they'll actually say that it can because there's a series of ducts that line up in the nipple and they're in parallel with the milk glands. And so when you pierce it, you potentially could cause some scarring and some disfigurement of those on a really small level, which could potentially make it a little more difficult for the baby to suck the milk through those mm. ducts. So I would say it's not a massive problem or that it would, you know, there would be more, I think, push against folks getting nipple piercing before completing childbearing. But I think there is, if you talk to most uh, lactation consultants, they'll, they'll mention something along those lines. So Dr. Martin, I want you to, to take this one regarding nursing. Explain the whole thing. Well, how is this even possible? This is magical, really, truly magical. Let's talk about. Did you Ro- pick him Ro- because he's Ro- the youngest? Ro- 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 just said you picked him because he's the youngest to go after the nursery. Okay, yeah, you, you know, you do. well, I'm, I'm flattered that you would pick me, you know, for this. Now, you know, I do have a 15 month old at home, and she's just finishing this magical journey that's possible of breastfeeding. And how is this magic possible? Well. It all starts in, you know, goes back to that wonderful mammary gland of the nipple. Because whenever you're going through pregnancy, you have higher amounts of progesterone that's going on during pregnancy. Typically towards the end of your pregnancy, you know, you start having oxytocin release. And when oxytocin does, that's the, the medication when you go into labor, we give you for augmentation called pitocin, but your brain naturally produces this called oxytocin. And what that does, that causes the milk that's been produced inside the, the breast to be let down. And then you have stimulation. There's different things that also can increase that release, such as, you know, when the baby is suckling kind of at the, at the nipple, whenever the baby is irritation around the nipple, that causes more of that oxytocin to release and then causes that milk to be let down. And, you know, breastfeeding is such a huge, huge benefit to the kiddo as far as they, they've done studies to, to show its correlation with decreasing chance of asthma, allergic responses. On top of that, you can see women have a faster recovery to their pre-pregnancy weight whenever they're breastfeeding as well. There's just a bunch of positive benefits and including, you know, bonding with your kiddo as well. So it is kind of a, a really cool thing that moms are able to do. Now, that being said, not every woman has this great magical experience with breastfeeding. You know, a lot of times there's patients that have difficulty with a kiddo latching or just have problems producing or if the baby's born a little prematurely, the production of the milk hasn't had enough time to essentially get to that full term level. And then you see moms that are struggling. They're doing all the right things. They're breastfeeding. They're doing their counseling. They're doing their pumping every two to three hours and it's not coming, you know, and, and that unfortunately, not, not unfortunately, that's fortunately what uh, formula is for. Not everyone yeah. So are you seeing, so. are you seeing, cause I know in, we've gone through eras where it's okay to nurse and it's really popular to breastfeed. And then there, we have eras where it's like, we don't, 
I want to be have my freedom. You know, the 60s and the 70s was liberating for women where they said, I don't have to nurse the whole time. Are, what what kind of era are we in right now? Is it just women can choose? I definitely think the last, say, 20 years have been really, really positive in terms of pushing yeah. breastfeeding. Sure. Okay? When I was born, I was born in... <laughs> Long time, Long ago. time ago, 1971. <laughs> I was born in 1971. And I've talked to my mom about this because I asked, I said, was I breastfed? What did I do? What did I formula? And, you know, when I asked my mom about this, she says, well, there was this really push that, hey, you know, this, what we're making and what we're producing is actually better than breast milk. This is what was, it was kind of spoon fed to her as from a marketing standpoint in regards to formula that, hey, you don't have to deal with all the pressures of breastfeeding. And, hey, we have this thing that's even better than breast milk. And that's been shown to be completely false. But, you know, it obviously, and there's definite benefits to breastfeeding and things like that. But I don't think I was. And they, yeah. they let me operate on people <laughs> for a living. So, I mean, I, th I think at the end of the day, really, it comes down to I think if you had to choose one and you have the ability to, and it's not a, a huge, gigantic burden, I think breastfeeding is better. We've seen that right. in lots of studies, you know, that if you proven. can. But if you can't, or if you're having problems, or it's physically impossible, or the breast milk production not coming in, you know, at the end of the day, we do have formula. And like mm -hmm. he said, you know, Sam, look at him. He turned out okay, you know, and he was breastfed. So, I mean, I guess well, it's not all that bad. bad. Well, I actually was formula fed okay. as well. So. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, now we're seeing a pattern. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so one thing, you know, we do have some, we have some tricks and things that when moms are having a hard time lactating. And we, we do have some medications, for example, uh, metoclopramide, which that can be used in low doses to increase prolactin levels. Another funny thing is, you know, we've always been told, I don't even remember where the first time I heard this, but I remember hearing in a residency that one thing you can tell moms to do would be drink a beer. Oh my gosh. You heard of this? Mm -hmm. Drink a beer and maybe the barley and this kind of thing. Yeah, I've yeah. tried to find a study to show that, <laughs> but I've, I have not really seen, seen where that happened, but it could be. Mm -hmm. I think it, it's more like to maybe let her relax a little bit. So. <laughs> no, it really does work. You have to get one that's really hot. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So magicians recommending an IPA. I didn't know this. I wish I had known this. I know that subsequent babies, I had four babies, nursed all four of them, and each one was easier. I know the first one was just hell. It was hell to get the baby to latch on, to get past the soreness, that first month of being sore and all the fun things that go along with that. But Dr. Mallory, I wanted to ask you if there, what is the physiology, maybe it isn't, it's not physiological, maybe it's psychological of the milk coming down when you hear the baby cry. Is it, how is that possible? I mean, I'm talking magic. This is magic. When I remember this and feeling my uterus contract when I was nursing, all of those things that you talked about, how it's shown to help you return to pre-pregnancy weight. What is it about this whole process that helps the body? Is it hormones? Well, I mean, as far as hearing a baby cry and the milk comes down, it's pretty much the same thing as what Jacob said. You have certain stimuli that will cause your brain to release the hormone and you have milk let down. It's amazing. Now, as far as weight loss and getting to your pre-pregnancy weight, well, breastfeeding increases your metabolism because you have to make food for the baby. Plus, you need to do your normal everyday stuff that your body has to do. So it increases your metabolism, so it can cause you to lose weight. Okay. I think it's 800 to 1,000 calories mm -hmm. a day on average that you burn to make milk. To make that the product of breast milk, it, it has an energy cost. And so that's one of the reasons that you can kind of get a little bit quicker back to your, your pre pregnancy weight. Not everyone will. Not yeah. everyone will. And We're some people different. that are, that are, you know, have really small BMIs, actually, they have to 
eat an excess of calories and they, you, know, you find like they actually have to keep a little bit of weight on if they want to still produce effectively. Like if right. they get, you know, dropped below a certain BMI, they usually can see their breast milk production start to taper It would be off. really great if we could simulate that ability to burn those many calories because I just rode my Peloton for 45 minutes. It kicked my ass and I only burned 120 calories. So it would be really great if we could <laughs> yep. figure out a way to to simulate that. So, okay, let's talk about self breast self-exam or breast exams. You know, when you're going into your annual pelvic and breast exam, I most women are aware of what that is. Tell us what you're looking for when you do a breast exam. Well, breast exams in the office, we're basically looking to see if one, you start out looking at the nipple, do they look cracked? Is there any discharge coming from the nipple? Then you start to palpate around the breast and make sure that you don't have any lumps, masses, or any tenderness when you do it. You also look at the skin to make sure you don't have any retraction. And what is that? What is retraction? Basically, when they bend over, if the skin kind of indents, that's not a good sign. So we may do, instead of a screening mammogram, she might need a diagnostic mammogram. I still encourage patients to do monthly breast exams because honestly, you know what your breasts feel like and this is, more than I do. Yeah. I mean, it might feel weird to me, but you tell me I've had this since I was 16. Then I've still, you, I still have. And you're 36. I, yeah. I probably would not be yeah. as upset. There's been organizations that have come out. I think, don't quote me. I think it was U.S. Mm-hmm. Preventive Task Force Services or when I was researching that a while back for another PowerPoint I was doing or something. I just remember saying there. There was a, a, an organization that said there's no benefit for self-breast exam, and then it could actually have caused patient harm because of the anxiety it could cause because certain women have fibrocystic breasts, and they're going to feel something. They're going to get overly anxious about it, and they're going to go – and there, there's, a, there's a certain harm to that. But I'll tell you, I don't, don't necessarily agree with that, and I think 99% of OBGYNs don't agree with that. And so I encourage self-breast exam with my patients, with every patient, and I use it when I'm doing the exam on them. I'm teaching them how to do it. I use that as an opportunity to do that. I got to know their body. And one of my patients, by the way, this is a funny story. I got to just tell us because I just thought of it. So, and we do mammography in our office. And so a lot of times they'll come in for their annual exam. They get, they get their samogram and then their mammogram. That's actually, yeah, the patient. So are you getting your mammogram? As soon as I'm done with my samogram. I thought that was good. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you now, I kind of do a hybrid approach. You do your self-breast exams, but they're actually teaching this breast awareness thing now, which is essentially know what your breasts feel like at baseline and then know what they feel like before your period, on your period, and after your period. Because your breasts can change during that time. Sensitivity can change. The size can even change as well. You know, so, so just be aware of what they feel like during those times. And if anything out of the ordinary comes up, let us know. It's kind of blends those two. Okay, well, so we talked about the samogram. Let's talk about the mammogram, right? The what... I've heard of thermograms. Is that a next level mammogram or? No, that is not approved for breast cancer screening. And I don't really see that coming into play. There's definitely been people to look at, at doing that where you look at a increased, you're, you're assuming that that increased thermal activity is an increased area of metabolic activity. And then you're associating that with a tumor, which is obviously going to have a higher <clears throat> area of metabolism, but similar to a PET scan. But mammograms are radiographic procedures, an x-ray. It's an x-ray of your breast. And they've come a long way. And it's the only thing we really have in terms of screening. And I don't think the limitations of this podcast, I think we really should save the, the conversation on this to an entire episode because there's so much variance really that we have to talk about. Okay, we'll do that. Of mammography that I really want to push it. And maybe 
just reminder, you know, October is Breast Cancer yeah. Awareness Month, so we may want to push it uh, at some we point. We will do that. Season two, watch for the episode on mammograms. And we'll reference, when we talk about this episode, we'll actually put a link to the, the mammogram episode when we do that. But quickly, how often should you have a mammogram done? Yearly over 40. And almost uh, every one of the larger organizations that puts out guidelines is going to yeah. say that. There is ACOG's the only yeah. one that says one yeah. to two yeah. years, right. and then once you're 50 yearly. But I think most people routinely do yearly at age 40. And remember <laughs> that there's some caveats with that. For example, if you have a family history, for example, the guidelines would say, hey, you need to start mammography 10 years earlier than that relative. So if your mother had breast cancer at 42, you really should start mammography screening at 32 years of age. Or if you have a genetic increased risk of breast cancer, such as something called BRCA1 or 2, then you would actually do like an MRI in combination with your mammogram up until the point when you're done breastfeeding and then yeah. you know, potentially prophylactic mastectomy. All right. We'll come back and discuss mammograms in a future episode. Let's talk about implants. Very popular cosmetic surgery. I think probably... Aside from Botox, the most popular cosmetic surgery. Let's uh, and you can't really call Botox cosmetic surgery. I feel like we see less of it now. I, honestly, I don't know. At least, at least I'm seeing it. not a. I mean, you see implants, but it's not something that I'm. I'd say maybe I don't know, ten percent. I'm, I'm seeing more patients mm-hmm. that are having them removed and having a lift at the same time. But you know, when you look at the the history of implants, it's been an interesting, you know, saline, roller coaster ride. Silicone, on that. saline. I have a fair amount of the older population that have implants. And honestly, I to look and to feel, I would not know the difference that this is not her breast tissue. The one for the fact that I know she's like 45 and these are like <laughs> their dense breast tissue, 17 right. year old. And then that's when I ask. And they'll tell you wholeheartedly, yeah, these are implants. But there's also a bunch of different types, right? Because yeah. they used to do that subpectoral, mm-hmm. you know, there's like tons of different yeah. ways that they there's do There's different them. methods and there's different types. You have the saline, you have the silicone. And I think with the silicone, you have the gummy bear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then there's yeah. different shapes, the round, the tube shape. Like it's a whole... It, it, it honestly can thing. affect your, you know, ability to do a self-rest exam yeah. and even like potentially your ability to pick up abnormalities. You know, mm-hmm. I think in that case, if you have any difficulty, they move more towards a 3D scan or an MRI mm-hmm. to get more detail. And it can certainly affect lactation. So I think mm-hmm. that everybody's seen this. If you, And we don't say it's contraindicated, but if I tell patients, if breastfeeding is extremely important to you, then I would hold off on getting uh, implants until you're done childbearing. All right. We'll cover more about this in the mammogram episode because that impacts the ability to have a mammogram. I have implants and it's very uncomfortable to have a mammogram done. (laughs) Very uncomfortable. So we're going to wrap up this episode on breasts and we'll wrap it up talking about a bra. There's this push to free the nipple, right? Do we have, everybody has nipples. Why do we have to hide the fact that we have nipples? Why do I have to wear a bra that compresses my nipples and shows that I don't, you know, hides the fact that I have nipples? Is it unhealthy to wear a tight bra or a tight, let's see, like the the camisole that has the shelf bra that's really tight and keeps the breasts. Why did everyone just turn and look at me? <laughs> As the resident woman in this room. <laughs> they all snapped their heads and looked at me. I didn't look at your breasts. <laughs> they just all snapped. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with you wearing a tight fitting bra or those camisoles. It's just about comfort, the bigger breast you are, most women want support. 
So sometimes they find that in underwire, but underwire is uncomfortable as hell. Mm. So if you can find the non-underwire ones are a good support bra, that's perfectly fine. It will not, if you don't, your breasts will not go down to your knees. I had a friend in elementary school. Her mother told her, you have to sleep with a bra and you're going to get square breasts. And I well, was like, I don't think that's true. But y'all go ahead. In reference, Rayanne, to the... the, the visualization of the nipples like the what why do women why, have to cover yeah, why it? do we why, have why to I, I think jennifer aniston sort of solved that problem yeah. with friends i mean she freed I mean, am i right <laughs> she freed the nipple we fripples we all have fripples frozen nipples so yeah i think I, most if i if i was a woman i think my more issue would be like i don't want the person especially the guy that i'm talking to to have what's called nipnosis have you ever heard of nipnosis oh where oh where they're yeah, just staring they're at your breasts where okay the, the guy is, is goes yeah. into a hypnotic state looking <laughs> at nipples that's, that's called nipnosis it's a yeah, yeah <laughs> it's fitting though it's very fitting <laughs> so we don't have to wear an underwear bra to prevent our boobs from sagging to our knees and if you nurse is there more of a chance that your breasts will sag and hang or what? I think it is more of a risk, not necessarily because you don't have support, but a lot after breastfeeding, a lot of that dense press, breast tissue kind of atrophies a little bit. So you'll notice that your breasts aren't as full as they used to be. Yeah, just because that, that skin has yeah. essentially mm-hmm. been, you know, stretched, stretched out. out. A little bit. It's exactly mm-hmm. it. Especially patients that had smaller breasts before they lactated and their breasts got huge when they lactated and then they're going to go right back to the small they're going to look saggy or they're going to look like they're kind of drooping there. I mean, it's just that's really, really, really common. OK. And do breast implants? Uh, this was a rumor. They have to be replaced every 10 years or less. I believe they do. That's what the plastic surgeons mm-hmm. I will tell the patients that. But I tell you, I have a lot of patients that simply don't go by that. I don't know what the guidelines are on that. And I would defer to my plastic surgeon mm-hmm. colleagues to sort of address that, because I think that there's differences between the different implants. And I have had, you know, where patients were very happy with it and had no problems. And they've let the, the plastics guys have let them go a little longer with those. Yeah. It might have to do something with, you know, the, the implants only been approved for a certain number of years, you know, and mm-hmm. that, that's what I mean. Okay. So the consensus is talk to your plastic surgeon. If you have a question, yes, yeah, talk to your plastic surgeon. Okay, great. Well, we're going to wrap this episode. Any last thoughts? Anything we left abreast? No, I, think that, I don't know. But I kept hearing in my mind, this is the funniest thing is the whole thing. Why, why we've been recording this. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just a culture of movies. I love, I'm always thinking of movie quotes. And all I could hear in my mind throughout this entire episode was, I have nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? Yeah, Remember this? Yes. From what was this? Meet the Fonkers. Was it Meet the Fonkers or was it Meet the Parents? Meet the Parents. 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 Yeah. I think this is one of the hardest I've ever done. Oh, Robert De Niro. I think. When Ben Stiller's talking about milking cats. Making the cat. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I was. I have to confess, I was thinking the same thing when I asked if why do men have nipples. Then all of a sudden, my brain went, Ah, Meet the Parents. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure. So much more to talk about. We will come back with an episode about mammograms. Thanks for tuning in all. We'll see you next time. All right, see ya. Bye-bye now. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Vigitions, where we answer the questions you may be afraid to ask. A little legalese for you. The physician hosts of this podcast are actively practicing doctors in the field of obstetrics and gynecology. They are all three licensed to practice medicine in their respective state and are either board certified or board eligible within their specialty. This podcast is for entertainment and education only. 
Any content from this program should not be considered official medical advice, and listening to this podcast should not by any means be considered a legal patient-physician relationship. If you have a medical issue worthy of discussion on this program, you should seek immediate medical attention with the physician of your choice. The Vagicians is made possible by our generous sponsors. All About Women OBGYN, with a mission to promote, protect, and restore health in women's reproductive systems and a legacy that spans greater than 50 years, you can trust all your women's healthcare needs to All About Women OBGYN. Healthy Start Coalition of Bay, Franklin, and Gulf Counties. Healthy Start's mission is to promote healthy pregnancies, babies, and families by providing services and facilitating access to resources through community partnerships while advancing racial equity and cultural responsiveness. Emerald Coast Obstetrics and Gynecology. Offering a dedicated medical care team, Emerald Coast specializes exclusively in women's health services in Panama City, Florida, and Panama City Surgery Center. Located in Panama City, Florida, the Surgery Center offers top medical specialties and services in one convenient location with minimally invasive outpatient procedures to get you back to normal life quickly. The Vagicians podcast is produced by host Rayanne Thorne Kruger. Our editor is Igor Kuzmanovsky with Ike Zabala as our announcer. And finally, a special thanks to our spouses, partners, and families for their support, ideas, and feedback. Thank you.